I have entitled this message, The Losses and the Persecutions of Legalism. Last time we were here in this passage and we began to look at three things that I suggested to you. First of all, the miracle performed. Secondly, the master persecuted. And third, the murder that is plotted here. We only got as far as the miracle and we had a wonderful time together just watching Jesus move through the crowd and heal this man, sovereignly picking him out of the crowd. And you remember we talked about the fact that when Jesus looks through a crowd, he looks for that person that is hurting more than anyone else in the crowd and really has a desire to minister to and bless that person. And that is exactly what he did here. And so we talked about that. We ended with that and we come now today to go on and talk about the second thing here where we'll spend most of our time and that is the master persecuted this to look at this persecution that breaks out as a result of what Jesus did now I told you last time that there was a specific timing involved in this miracle this man we are told in verse 9 was healed on the Sabbath if you look there it says and immediately the man was made well took up his bed and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. Now, Jesus could have healed this man on any day, but he chose to move through the multitudes and arrive at this time and this place with this man who had been there. We don't know exactly how long, but we do know his affliction was 38 years long. And he chose on the Sabbath day to perform this healing, this miracle. And at the same time, he chose on the Sabbath day to give this man the command to take up his bed and walk. And that was a very definite strategy on the part of Jesus. He did it for a reason. He had been marginally understood in his preaching so far in the general areas that he had been. But now he wants to become more pointed in his ministry and so what he does here is by design to bring to the Jewish leaders a clear, unmistakable message of who he was. And he goes on from here to unfold his deity for the rest of the chapter. And we will look at that next time. But this was a clear, unmistakable message to the Jews and it upset them. I told you last time that Vance Havner mentioned one time that Jesus was the most disturbing person in history. And that is without question true, obviously true. The more you study the life of Jesus, the more you see him upsetting the status quo as it kept men from God. So this miracle performed at this specific time was designed for a specific end. And it was to really reach down into the hearts of these legalistic Jews and send the message loud and clear of who he was and how far they were from the heart of God and the design of God in their understanding of the scriptures of God because of their legalism and all of that then broke out in this persecution. The persecution that began on that day never left in the hearts of those Jews, never left Jesus and it rose and rose and rose until it finally led to his death. And these men would not settle in their hearts nor become satisfied until they stood with their arms folded pointing at him and laughing at him as he hung dying on the cross. All of that began on this very day. So we're at a turning point in the Gospel of John here with this miracle performed. But let's talk about the master persecuted here. In John 5.10 it says, the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Now let's just talk about this man here for a minute. This obedient man was met with opposition because of his obedience to the Lord. You see that? No sooner is he healed, no sooner does he trust Christ and obey him, but that there is opposition from the religious sector waiting for him, that meets him immediately. And that is so typical of what happens to an individual who really has their life touched by Jesus Christ. There is so much dead religion in the world in terms of 
what was perhaps originally a living religion, so much dead type of religious conduct, religious groups, all in the name of heaven, in the name of Christianity or whatever. And certainly this religious group here, these religious leaders stood in the name of Jehovah. But they were so far from God. And what happens is that when God touches a life, and that life begins to submit to the Word of Jesus Christ, to submit to the Word of God, unless you at that point are willing to cave into the creed of those religious people around you, whatever denomination or sect they might be, and really observe their rules of conduct, then you have to be ready for persecution and or ostracism from that group. And I know that many of you have gone through that. Some of you are in the middle of it right now. But you see, this man, as soon as he began to obey Jesus, faced this kind of persecution and ostracism, and that is our lot. Because unless we are ready to be brought into the bondage of, quote, the tradition of the elders, and these are the elders of Israel here, then we have to be ready for their frowns. The thing that makes it very difficult is that you have these people that have been long in their religion, and then suddenly they perceive that you get some kind of religion by your newfound belief in Jesus Christ, so they categorize that as becoming religious. You're now believing in God in some way, and they want to set you straight immediately. And unless you will bow to their creeds and bend to the bondage that they want to bring to you, then you have to face their frowns and their persecution and ostracism. And that is often so difficult because you feel like, well, who am I? I barely know anything about all this. And now I'm facing all of this. I, and, and it's often so unexpected. So unexpected. And you can't even imagine why people would be that way. But you notice here that Jesus... When he gave the man the command to pick up his bed and carry it, he did it by design. One reason was to show that he really was healed to everybody there. And another reason was to draw the attention of these people. And at the same time, he was not ignorant of their teaching regarding the Sabbath. They're all upset. And they say in verse 10, it is the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath. Now, it's not lawful to carry your bed on the Sabbath. He knew exactly what they taught and believed about the Sabbath. Jesus did when he gave that command to that man to carry his bed. But you begin to realize, you know, as you study the life of Jesus, that one of the reasons he came, one of his purposes as he moved through Israel, was to set his people free from the shackles of legalism. They had been so long bound under the deadness and the bondage of the legalism of their religious leaders. And he's still doing that today. He comes to set people free from the religious shackles of the leaders of the day. And that is something that is really so obvious here. And what you realize is this. Jesus never acquiesced to the public opinion of his day in terms of religion. He never acquiesced to that. He never caved into that. And I think that many of us today need to remember the words of Galatians chapter 5 as it relates to our Lord and his behavior could you turn to Galatians chapter 5 to verse 1? Paul, in writing to the Galatians, realizing that they have caved into the persecution that has come from the religious sector, he says to these people who had been set free by the grace of God, he says, Stand therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Don't let these people lead you back into their traditions that are going to lead you away from an intimate, spirit-filled relationship with God. Stand on the Word of God. Stand on what you know to be true. You see, if your life is regulated by the Word of God, then it really doesn't matter to you what other people think. If you know that your life is pleasing to the Lord because you're standing on the Word of God, then you can face this kind of opposition, whether you're a new Christian or whether you're an old Christian. 
I mean, this guy is a brand new believer. He is a brand new babe, as we would call it in Christ. And so as you let your life be regulated by the word, you stand fast in the liberty that Christ has given you and you don't allow people to lead you into their yoke of bondage. It is far better to displease people like this and to incur their unhappiness with you than it is to frustrate the grace of God in your own life. God wants to bless you. God has a move of grace for you in your life by His Spirit. And it is always better to frustrate man than to frustrate the grace of God in your life. And so we read in John 5.11, if you go back there, this man answered them, and he said, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And Jesus said it, knowing exactly the reaction it was going to bring. Now this man, in facing this opposition, because of his obedience to Christ, suddenly becomes a tremendous example to us of some very interesting things. By hiding himself behind Christ. If you look at this man, you see that he faces this opposition, then he hides himself behind Christ. And not in a cowardly way, but in a wise way. Jesus is the captain of our salvation. Jesus has come to go before us. Jesus has come to care for us. And this man entrusts himself to Christ's care. One way he does it is he answers his critics with simplicity. And this is tremendous when you consider he's just now had his first experience with trusting Christ. And he is immediately bombarded with opposition and he just answers back with simplicity. You realize, of course, that this man could have entered into an argument immediately with them about their perverted views of the Sabbath, but he refused to. Do you realize that? And certainly he could have added to that by saying, and not only that, but where is your sympathy for all the suffering that goes on here? You all know me. After 38 years in this condition, unable to move, you all know me. Where is your rejoicing in the healing that I have received from God? Where is your rejoicing in the fact that a man who has been bound to his bed, unable to move for 38 years, is suddenly totally well? What is the matter with you people? But he hides behind Christ by answering simply, and it is a wonderful example to us of how to deal with our critics and the opposition, to answer simply. There's so often the tendency and the temptation, and it's real, isn't it? When you know you have the better argument, and you know you can nail them right now, and you have to stand and let the Spirit speak to your heart and give you the discretion that you need to be led by the Lord and to respond properly to the situation. He answers his critics with simplicity. And then he falls back on the Word of God. He simply goes back to Jesus. He said to them, he answered them, and he said in verse 11, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. You know, we're in a good position when we can say to those that are opposing us and criticizing us, Thus saith the Lord. You see, the reason I'm doing this is because it says in the Bible, This is the word of the Lord. Why did you take up your bed and walk? Well, because he who healed me told me to do it. Now, obviously... Here's a man, 38 years in this condition. Don't you guys get it? We're not just dealing with anybody here. This man comes along and he, with a word, heals me. I'm walking now. I'm carrying my bed that used to carry me. Don't you get it? They didn't get it. But he falls back on the word of Jesus. And what an example that is for us. Peter did it. Remember on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God began to move and He starts to fill these people and they begin to speak forth in languages that were unknown to them? Tongues? Then these people are all around and they begin to realize, well, this guy over here is speaking in the language that he doesn't know, but I know it. It's my language. Happens to another guy over here and another guy over here and then some religious guy off on the side who thinks he knows everything says, oh, they're just filled with new wine. And now comes the opposition, you see. As they're responding to the move of the Holy Spirit upon them, here comes the opposition. What does Peter do? He stands up in Acts chapter 2, verse 16, and he says, This is that which was spoken. 
by the prophet Joel. We're just doing what the word of God has already foretold. What we're doing here is in line with the scriptures. This is the way we handle opposition. We answer our critics with simplicity and we fall back on the word of God. So here is this man who obeys Christ. He immediately faces opposition. He hides himself in Christ in the face of it. And yet, let me show you something else here in verse 12 and 13. And yet this man still had so much ignorance about Jesus. Verse 12. Then they asked him, and they said, Well, then who is the man that said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Now, this man had believed in Jesus enough to obey him when he asked him or commanded him to do the impossible. In the process, he became the recipient of the virtue of God flowing out from Jesus and into him. In reaction to what had happened there, he got up and he went straight to the temple where he had probably not been for 38 years. We know that there was great sin in this man's life because Jesus ties that into his sickness in the temple. So probably he hadn't been in the temple in years. First thing he does in response to Christ and his interaction with Christ, he goes straight to the temple where you worship and praise God and pray to God. So it tells us a lot about the man in terms of his belief lest you think he was just healed and wasn't a believer. But when he says, I don't know his name, I mean, I don't know, really, I can't tell you a lot of facts about this guy. Then he goes to the temple and Jesus finds him. And what I want to say to you from this is that we should not expect too much from babes in Christ. Here they come demanding all these details. He said, well, I don't know all these details. Now, Jesus, in his continuing work in his life, finds him in the temple and continues to fill in the details. And as the man goes on in his life, he has more details. He reveals himself to us a little at a time. And I think we, we need to remember that because we tend to often place a burden on brand new Christians they're unable to bear. We tend to assume that they ought to know more than they do. We tend to judge their behavior and misjudge their behavior when in fact they can only be where they are and know what they know according to what the Lord has revealed to them. And truthfully, the most important issue, I think, is not how much do you know, but how have you responded so far to what you know? That's the issue. Has what you learned so far led you to have Christ as the burning focus of your life? You see, this man stands up, obeys Christ, does the impossible, has to deal with these impossible individuals. Then he goes immediately to the temple to pray and to seek God. And there in the temple, Jesus reveals more of himself to him. Look at verse 14. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. He went back and found his persecutors. He went back and found his critics. And he gave them a great burning testimony of Jesus Christ, that it was Jesus. And he's filling in the details. He's witnessing for the Lord. This man knows so little, but with everything that he gets, you see Christ becoming more and more the focus of his life. It isn't how much you know. It's what have you done with what you know. And have you allowed Christ to become the burning focus of your life? That's the issue. A.W. Tozer once said, If there is any reality within the whole sphere of human experience that is by its very nature worthy to challenge the mind and charm the heart and to bring the total life to a burning focus, it is the reality that revolves around the person of Jesus Christ. And the sooner we come to understand that, the better. Because then we're not just running after knowledge in the Christian life. We're running after Jesus. I want to learn about Christ. But I don't want to learn about Him just for the sake of being able to tell people what I know. I want to learn about Him. I want to experience Him so I can go on to know Him better. And that is the issue. 
It isn't how much you know about Christ. It is what have you learned so far and what have you done with that that is the issue. So this is an interesting man. He's a tremendous example to us. Now there's something else that we find out about him here. He faces this opposition because of his obedience. He hides behind Christ as it hits him. He has his ignorance that is an issue about Christ, but he's responding to every little bit of light that he gets from Christ. And one other thing I want to draw to your attention here, lest it distract you, I think we need to deal with it. And that is this man was sick because of his sin. We touched lightly on it last time, but I want to spend some time with it now. Look at verse 14 again. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. That's a heavy statement. Commentators unanimously agree with that what Jesus is saying. You were sick because of your sin. Now God has made you completely well. Don't handle that lightly. He has undone what all of your sin did to you. Don't handle that lightly. What a heavy thought. Make sure that you do not go live in sin like you did before. He says, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. God has made you well. I'd be careful with that. This man was sick because of his sin. Now, that leads us to begin to jump to some conclusions, right? You look at that and you start to think about that and you start to think about your life and you start to ask some questions like this. Well, does that mean that if I'm sick, it's because of my sin? Like the man that came up to his pastor one time and he said, you know, pastor, can you really pray for my wife? She's had the flu now for two weeks and I just wish that she'd repent of her sin so she can get over this thing and get the flu out of our house. As if to say that just because she has the flu, she's in sin. So the question comes up, if I'm sick, does that mean that I'm in sin? Here this man hears from Jesus, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Your sickness came to you and put you on that bed for 38 years because of your sin. Now you go live differently so that sickness doesn't come back and even a worse thing. Because God having healed you, if you go back to the way you were, it could get really bad if you're going to live like that in the face of God's grace. Am I in sin if I am sick? Does that mean I'm in sin? Well, let me answer that question. One way to answer it is this. Sometimes you are sick and you are not living in sin. Sometimes you are sick and you are not living in sin. You simply catch what's going around. Nowadays, when people walk in the room and they're coughing and they're blowing their nose, I stand back because I realize I might catch what's going around. And then I'll have to stand up here and blow my nose in front of all of you and sniffle and cough and all that. I don't want to go through it. Sometimes you just catch what's going around. Those of you that have kids that are very young, they catch everything. So you're sick all the time. You went to the hospital the day of the birth. You came home rejoicing with bumper stickers and, and big banners on your wall and all these things rejoicing. And then the child grows a little tiny bit, grows a little tiny bit more. And all of a sudden now your child is sick and suddenly you catch it. Now you're sick. And now you have another child and the older one is now a toddler. Now you have this other infant and now there's two of them and they pass it back and forth. And they're growing and getting older and, and getting all these things and you catch them, Right? So now, a lot of the joy that you felt the initial day when you brought that precious bundle of love home has turned into bewilderment as you share their diseases. How's your precious bundle of love? <gasps> well, you see, uh, I don't know. Cut this cold from him. Sometimes we're sick just because it's going around. And so many things you realize are connected to the fall of man and the curse. Without going too deeply into that, God said the day that you sin, you will surely what? 
die. Well, there's a lot of breakdown in the human constitution through sickness and everything else that leads to that death. So a lot of the sickness that goes around is just simply a part of the curse that comes from man's fall into sin in the beginning. So it isn't really tied into your sin. It's going around. You catch it. You look in the Bible and you find that Paul the Apostle, he was sick all the time. The guy was just always had something. Many people think that what happened to Paul was that early on, on one of his missionary journeys, he caught malaria and that it plagued him for the rest of his life on and off. So here's a man who's not living in sin, out on a missionary trip, gets sick, carries the sickness within him for the rest of his life. Listen to the words of William Barclay on that thought. He mentions how in writing to the Galatians that Paul says this, in writing to the Galatians, he says, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. So Paul's saying, if I could interject, you Galatians, you know the reason I came to you originally is because I was sick. It was a sickness that drove me into your midst, and since I was there, I preached the gospel to you. That's from Galatians chapter 4. Now, Barclay goes on to say this, So when he came to Galatia, he was a sick man. Now Paul had a thorn in the flesh, Barclay says, which in spite of much prayer remained with him. You know that from 2 Corinthians. Many guesses have been made as to what that thorn was or the stake for the flesh, as it probably should be translated. He says, but the oldest tradition is that Paul suffered from these prostrating headaches. And the most likely explanation is that he was the victim of a virulent recurring malaria fever, which haunted the low coastal strip of Asia Minor. It was down there along the area of Pamphylia, along the coast. It was a malaria-infested type place. And a traveler says, Barclay records this, that a traveler says the headache characteristic of this malaria was like a red-hot bar thrust through the forehead. Another likens it to a dentist drill boring through a man's temple. It is most likely that this malaria attacked Paul in the low-lying Pamphylia and that he had to make for the plateau country of Galatia to shake it off. So he catches it down on the low coastal plain. To shake it off, he goes up to the high plateau. That's how he ends up in Galatia. So he writes to them and he says, You know that it was because of my sickness I ended up among you and preached the gospel to you. Here is a man who is not in sin but gets very sick. So sometimes... You are sick, though you're not living in sin. You catch what's going around. First time I ever, ever went to the Philippines, I remember we took all this medication with us ahead of time while we were there and afterwards so we wouldn't catch malaria because it's going around over there, you see, with the mosquitoes. They bring it to you. And you remember Job, don't you? He wasn't living in sin and he got sick and that came directly from Satan. So sometimes you're sick and you're not living in sin. We need to be very clear about that. But let me give you another answer. Sometimes people are sick because God is judging them for unrepentant sin. Let me show you an example of this. Could you turn in your Bible to 2 Chronicles chapter 26? The first purpose of this is I'm doing a survey right now to see if you know where it is. Second Chronicles 26. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to make you nervous. Now it's going to take you forever to get there. Shaky fingers have a hard time prying loose gold leaf pages. Second Chronicles 26.17. If you're not there by now, relax and just enjoy. I'll read it to you. 2 Chronicles 26.17 Uzziah was the king and he got proud and he wanted to go in and do what the priests would do. So here he is. This was sinful for him. And so in verse 17 it says, Azariah the priest went in after him and with him were 80 priests of the Lord. Can you imagine this scene? 80 priests of the Lord trying to stop this king from doing what he was doing. And they were valiant men. These are good men. And they withstood King Uzziah. 
and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. Then notice the man's heart. Then Uzziah, verse 19, became furious. And he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord beside the incense altar. So here this man is furious. In other words, he persists in his sin and he's getting worse and worse in his attitude of heart. There he is in the house of the Lord, right by the altar of the Lord, and God strikes him with a sickness, leprosy. It broke out in his forehead right there immediately. And all the priests in the house of the Lord saw it. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and there on his forehead he was leprous, so they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, notice, he also hurried to get out, just starting to get the point, because the Lord had struck him. So typical, isn't it? So human. Here he is, he persists in his sin. Eighty good men of God confront him. He pushes right on by them, and God strikes him with leprosy. He gets a sickness from God, and all of a sudden he's in a hurry now to obey God. Sometimes when you are unrepentant in your sin, the sickness can come by the hand of God to your life. And it is not a bad thing. Check in with the Lord when you get a sickness and ask Him how you're doing with Him. Might as well just check it out up front. Lord, at any rate, being now sick, I'm here in prayer. want to examine my heart and see if I'm in sin. If so, show me, Lord, lest I go on and persist in some sin that has brought this sickness from Your hand. So God, please, I have an honest heart. Just move in my heart and show me. Sometimes people are sick because God is judging unrepentant sin. Let me give you a third thought here. Sometimes people are sick because of the sickness that is built into the sin they are partaking of. You understand what I mean by that? Let me put it this way. There are many forms of immorality that have a built-in susceptibility to sickness. There are diseases, in other words, that you can catch as you give your life to a lifestyle of immorality, there are diseases you can catch. You know going into it that there's a good chance if you persist in this long enough, you will catch one of these diseases. And the statistics of Americans that have sexually transmitted diseases that will never be healed because so many of these cannot be cured is staggering. Absolutely staggering. So there are times when you are sick simply because of your sin. It's tied you into some kind of a disease that goes hand in hand with that sin. And that's why you're sick. So when Jesus says to this man, see you have been made well, go and sin no more. He is implying to him your lifestyle. Your sin led to this sickness. Now, I am completely delivering you from the effects of your sin. I'm completely healing you. Now you see that because of the good hand of God upon your life, everything's been overturned. Everything's been forgiven and cleansed. Now you go and live a different life. That was the point. Now let me ask you a question. This is an interesting thought. Jesus gave him a command. He said in his paralyzed state, he said, get up and pick up your bed and go. That was an impossible command, wasn't it? To a paralyzed man. Now he gives him another impossible command. He says, go and sin no more. Ask yourself, which is the more impossible one? The encouraging thing is this, is he had already shown him by healing him the power that he had to exercise in that man's life. He gave him an impossible command. He obeyed Jesus. The power was there. He got up and he walked away with his bed. Now he gives him another impossible command. He says, go and sin no more. He's not looking for perfection in the man's life. He's looking for a change in direction. And he is implying to the man by everything he's done, by finding him in the temple, the power is going to be there for you to live a different life. Now you go and live a different life. 
It's a tremendous thing to see the hand of God at work in this man's life. So we read here, he says, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. So here is this obedient man. Now, in the midst of all this, we see the humble Christ at work. And I am so blessed always to just contemplate the movement of Christ in his ministry, how he operated. You look at this and you read in John 5.13. And it says, But the one who was healed did not know who it was. For this reason, Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. You know what that says? It says this, Jesus never ministered with ostentation. Ostentation means to do something in front of people for an effect. To look for man's adoration and man's glory. Jesus never sought to be the popular idol of the hour, is what I'm saying. That's what the text is saying. Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. He never wanted to be the center of an admiring crowd. How different he is from the stars of our day, don't you think? So many things that are done publicly in the name of heaven for an effect. So many things that are done for a, a reaction from the people. So many things that are done, a cadence that the preacher picks up and goes on and on with and goes up and up and up and then working the people up to a pitch and then he drops back and pauses to draw out an applause from them. You see, all these different things that go on to become famous, to be a name. You see, so much done on every level of ministry so that person can be the center of attraction. And then you look at Jesus and you see Him withdraw a multitude being in that place. Jesus was always, ever and always, the humble minister. He had all the power and all the authority and all the ability to be the center of everything. And yet he was never looking for that. Why? Because he was always looking to glorify God with every move that he made. He said, the Father works, so I work. I do what he does. I reflect what he wants. My heart is his heart. And always sticking to that. Never doing what he did to be the center of attraction. And there are so many things we can do in the Christian life to be the center of attraction. He always ministered without ostentation. He ministered humbly. Another thing, as you see here, in John 5.14, afterwards Jesus found him in the temple and he said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. This is very characteristic of what Jesus does after he saves people. Do you see what it is? He exercises authority over their life. Here he commands this man. In fact, he begins his relationship with the guy with a question, and then he starts commanding, get up and walk. Then he searches him out in the temple, and he commands him again, see, go and sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. He saves the man in utter, sovereign, unsought for grace. And then he begins to exercise authority over the man's life. Why? Because he is the Lord Jesus Christ. What you find in the Bible, in the Gospels, is Jesus comes after the whole life as Lord. You don't find him taking a man and saying, you know, here I'll save you. And eventually there's an option, I'll just mention it to you, think about it later. There's an option of becoming a disciple. There's an option of me becoming Lord in your life. There's an option of me commanding you. There's an option of me leading you. No. He's everywhere. You see him. Pick up your cross daily. Deny yourself. Or you can't be my disciple. Exercising that authority. So always behind the grace that is unsought for in every life. Every life. Because God initiates salvation. God comes looking for you. God moves through the crowd and he finds you. Behind the grace and with the grace and by the grace comes the authority of God exercised in your life. Why? Because now that He's saved you from all of your own misguidance, now that He's saved you from all of your own mishaps, He wants to save you from ruining your future. And you've ruined your past. That's why you needed to be rescued. 
Now he wants to save your future life here as well. So immediately he begins to exercise authority in your life to save you from yourself. That's the thing. You ruined your life when it was in your own hands. He knows if you take it back into your own hands, you'll ruin it again. Go see that you sin no more, he says. You're going to ruin it all over again. I've gotten you off that mat. You're up and you're walking. You're happy. You're whole. You're feeling good. I want to keep you that way. And that's how he feels about you. So he always exercises authority over the lives that he saves. It's a tremendous thing to think about. Makes you long then to submit to that authority, doesn't it? Another thing here is, in this passage we see this obedient man. He's met with opposition. We see Christ moving humbly through his ministry, always for God's glory. And then we see in this same passage the legalistic Jews. They stick out so, well, like a sore thumb. The legalistic Jews persecuting Jesus and they miss God's blessing in the process. You read here in verse 16, For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. When John mentions the Jews like this, when you read the Jews in John's Gospel, he's not just referring in general to the Jews. He is referring, he uses the term to refer to the religious leaders that rejected and persecuted Christ. That's how he uses the term here. For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. Why? Because he had done these things on the Sabbath. You look at these men and you see this beautiful picture. Here comes Christ moving through the crowd. Here comes the heart of God looking for that person in the crowd who is suffering more than any other person in the crowd and wanting to minister to that individual's need. Here is the love of God, the grace of God moving among mankind. Here is the man who receives the blessing. Here is the man who receives the new life. And in the same scene are these individuals who miss it all, miss it all completely, and seek to put out that light, seek to quench that source, seek to eliminate the source of that love and grace. And you have to ask the question, what is it that would make an individual miss all that? And the answer is this, in one word, legalism. Legalism. What is legalism? It is, in the simplest sense, Setting up a system in your life to earn God's blessing, whether it be to earn salvation by your good works, whether it be to earn the favor of God by your good works, your good deeds, whatever. And these Jews were legalistic in the extreme in terms of earning their salvation and in terms of gaining the favor and the blessings of God. And you see that their legalism leads them to persecute Jesus and miss out on so much. Let me give you a few thoughts about legalism here. One thought is that legalism always causes the individual to misunderstand the heart of God in the Scripture. Because God is communicating His heart through the Scripture. You read in the Bible, Paul says that this letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. He's talking about legalism. That if you simply take the words and make a bunch of rules and regulations out of the Word of God, rather than allowing the words to make a relationship in your life, it's going to kill everything God wants to do with you. So you've got to read the words and seek God for what His heart is in those words. What legalism does is it causes you to misunderstand the heart of God in Scripture because you just want to take the words and make a list of things to do and not do, and then based on how well you do or don't do, you will earn or not earn the favor of God. And these men had misunderstood the heart of God in Scripture. They twisted and they perverted, in this case, the teaching of the Sabbath. Listen to just some of the things that they did in misunderstanding God's heart about the Sabbath. The difficulty lay with these leaders of Israel in the fact that they were always adding some little regulation to God's Word. What they had done is they had reduced 
the observance of the Sabbath down to the very worst form of legalism. For instance, listen to this. The law said that a man was not to travel on the Sabbath day. It said that in Exodus 16. Now, they were always asking this question. They'd come to a verse like that and they'd say, Now, now what does that really mean? What, what does that really mean about this traveling? Uh, what really constitutes a journey? And in answering this question, they then developed the concept of a Sabbath day's journey, which was roughly a thousand yards. So that from their reasoning, they came to this conclusion that a man could walk that far on the Sabbath, but if they walked any more than a thousand yards, that was a sin. By the way, they were always trying to use their reasoning to get around what God was really after. So they went on farther with this. If, however, a rope was tied across the end of a street, then the whole street technically became one house. So that a man could walk a thousand yards beyond the rope. So now they're extending the thing, you see. Or if he deposited enough food for a meal at any given place on Friday night before the Sabbath, on the next day he could walk to that place eat his meal, thereby technically establishing a home by having a meal in that place, and then he could walk a thousand yards more. That line of reasoning, if you carry it out far enough and you're clever enough, you could probably determine how a man could walk halfway across Israel on the Sabbath and not really be traveling on the Sabbath. Or take the matter of carrying a burden. The text in Jeremiah about the Sabbath prohibits this. And that's what they're getting all upset with this man that Jesus healed about. But they said, what is a burden? Is a handkerchief a burden? They came to a conclusion that it was a burden, but it wasn't a burden if they tied it around their neck and made it like an article of clothing. So then they weren't carrying a burden. So they went further and reasoned this. Obviously then, if you wanted to get the handkerchief out of the upstairs drawer, down to the bottom drawer, without really carrying a burden on the Sabbath, then you'd open the drawer, quickly tie it around your neck, and walk downstairs, open the door, quickly untie it, and let it drop into the drawer, and you would not have carried a burden on the Sabbath. It's all true. They carry the same logic out this way. Take a man who is out walking, and he decides he needs a good spit. So here he is out walking. Of course, it's a man. Women would never do anything like this. This is a real guy thing. Good spit. So he's out walking, and he decides he needs a good spit. But the question arose, if he takes a good spit, would that constitute work? Because... It really depends on what happens to the saliva. You see, it comes flying out, and some guys are really good at this, and it hits the ground with a force. Now, being dry and dusty there, it then hits this dry, dusty ground, and it forms a slight furrow, which then would constitute sort of a plowing. So they determined that a good spit hitting the ground would be sort of a work. So, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So they figured out that what a guy needs to do if he wants a good spit on the Sabbath is he needs to look for a good rock, a nice big rock, and just hang one at that rock. <laughs> and the rock being so hard then, there'd be no furrow, no plowing, so that really would then constitute working on the Sabbath. So under this kind of system, being religious on Saturday, then more or less depended on which direction you spit. They went on with this, and, and it was all abhorrent to Jesus Christ. He absolutely despised it. That's why I say again, when he told that man, pick up your bed and walk, he did it on purpose. He had come to loose the people from the shackles of this nonsense. 
He determined to rescue them from the enslavement to these man-made Sabbath regulations and restore a proper balance by showing that the Sabbath was made for man, made for man to rest. Man was not made to keep all these rules and regulations that would ruin his life on the one day he had to rest from work. So what he did on that day with that man that aggravated the leaders was to pave the way for fuller revelation that would set the people free from the shackles of this kind of legalism. Why? Because legalism leads you to misunderstand the heart of God in the Scripture. There's another thing it causes you to do. It causes you, obviously, then, to misapply Scripture. To misapply Scripture. If you can't understand the heart of God in Scripture, because of your legalism, you're going to misapply it. And they misapplied it in the extreme. For example, just to give you one example, turn to John 5.39, or just drop down or whatever, but go there. John 5.39. Jesus says, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. Why? Because they wanted to earn their own way in, that's why. And so because of their legalism, they misapplied the Scripture. In misapplying the Scriptures, they missed their Messiah when He came to them. That is the ultimate example of misapplying Scripture because of legalism. You want to see the flip side of it? Turn to Hebrews 10, to verse 5, and you'll see the exact opposite of what he encountered with these religious leaders, these legalists. Hebrews 10, to verse 5. Here the writer to the Hebrews who understood the Old Testament, who applied it right, who found the heart of God in it, is able to sort through the Word, find the heart of God in Psalm 40 and verses 6 through 8, and pull it out and put it into his writing. He saw it all so clearly. And he says concerning Christ, Hebrews 10.5, Therefore when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me, in burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin you have no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. The writer there seeing exactly what the heart of God was in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, that it was foretelling the coming of the Christ, their Messiah. And yet, why could that individual see it and these men could not? One word, legalism. Legalism causes you to misunderstand the heart of God in Scripture, then it causes you to misapply the Scriptures. Another thing that it causes you to, to do is to misjudge the Spirit's work in a person's life. And certainly they did that with this healed man, right? I mean, they're oblivious to that. Here is this great work of the Spirit of God in this man's life after 38 years. Everything changes in a moment of time, and they misjudge the whole thing. All they can see about this great work of God is bad. All they can see about this great work of God is, hey guys, he's carrying something on the Sabbath. That's all they can see. They're completely misjudging the Spirit's work in that man's life on that day. And we can do that. It isn't that hard to fall into it. I think it's a great temptation... If you are legalistic, if you want to make everything a set of rules and regulations, it's a great temptation, and don't forget this, legalism traffics in extremes. It's a great temptation to take your philosophy of ministry even and make that your set of rules and regulations and criteria for the blessing of God. Now, those of us that were around in the late 60s, early 70s and saw the Jesus movement, our classic witness of all of this. Because in the Jesus movement, here were all these people on drugs, turning on, tuning in, and dropping out. Remember all that? And reacting to the establishment, and nobody was reaching them. Suddenly, God began to speak to Chuck Smith's heart that if these people wanted to come to church with long hair, it would be all right. Some of them showed up with bare feet, 
And one of the ushers at his church got all upset, just threw a big fit. The very idea of a long hair coming in here with bare feet. They're going to mess up this nice new carpet. So Chuck goes in when no one's around, moves the pews aside and tears out the carpet. Fine. Now are you happy? He can't mess up the new carpet. Then he invited them all in. So they started coming, bare feet, long hair. I remember the big issue in those days after I got converted, the big talk I would hear from people all the time in the established religious world was, can you be spiritual and be a man and have long hair? And so many people said, well, if the Spirit really gets a hold of you, it will manifest itself in a nice haircut. (laughs) For real! I remember being baffled by that. And you'd meet these people and they all look like clones from some guy's barber shop, you know? Same hairstyle, same haircut, but oh my, were they spiritual. And the genius of the movement was that Chuck and others were open to just let God work in the lives of these people. One of her relatives said to her, when she started going over there, Oh, we're so afraid for you. Why don't you go to a real church? A real church. What does that mean? Well, you know, where they have nice haircuts and everything, and everybody's tidy, and you wear a suit and a real nice dress to church, or you don't come, you know. It's, that's God so worked in your life that you have a nice short haircut and everything. Why don't you go to a real church? We're so worried about you kids. Now, follow this out. Here we are now after all these years, and it's okay among our movement to come to church in shorts, t-shirts, Longs, you know, jeans with the knee worn out, your knee is showing through, and you think you're cool. But it's all right, you know? <laughs> so it's okay to do all this. Now, we could get all legalistic about this. And we could turn around and say, well, God only really moves when you're casual. If you have to come to that place in a tie and a, and a suit all the time, and you have to have a certain kind of haircut and all this then God couldn't possibly move. Then God begins to move in an environment like that. And we stand back and we just, "Mm, couldn't possibly be the Lord. No, no, no. They couldn't even possibly be spirit-filled. I mean, look at them. You know, this kind of thing. And we're legalistic. And we hear about God moving over here in one of these groups. And we misjudge the whole thing. Why? Because they don't do it like we do. Oh, they have a choir with 150 people and they wear pastel robes. God will never show up in a place like that. No, but he's working on it. I don't even want to hear it. Don't tell me that. If you have to have a praise band, you've got to have some drums and a synthesizer. And, you know, this kind of thing. If, if you don't have a beat, man, you don't have God working. And we get legalistic like this. Oh, there's this... Catholic Church down here and God is doing awesome work. All these people are getting saved. There's this priest down there. He's gotten nutty. He's preaching the Bible all the time and he's gotten rid of the prayer book and he lets people bring Bibles to church and he's preaching up a storm. He's a fabulous teacher and people are being saved. Oh, they are not. Everybody knows that priests don't teach the word and that, you know, a guy in an outfit like that could never reach anybody. But in reality, we're misjudging. God help us. God help us lest we become legalistic with our thing. And if people don't conform to our thing, then we misjudge them rather than rejoicing in the work of the Spirit among them. So much we could say about that. But you know the greatest thing that you miss out on when you're legalistic? You miss out personally. You miss out personally. Because here you go misunderstanding the heart of God in Scripture. Here you go misapplying Scripture. Here you go misjudging the Spirit of God working in the lives all around you. And you're the one who misses out. These people watched the Son of God walk through their midst, changing lives every direction He went, and they missed it all. They missed it all. Finally, they came to the point where Jesus said, you're basically hopeless, and you're going to stay in your condition of missing it all. When it's all said and done, you're going to miss heaven, and you're going to end up in hell forever. They missed out. Don't miss out by being a legalistic individual. Be open to the love of God. Be open to the Spirit of God. Yes, be studious with the Word of God. But be a loving person who can appreciate what God is doing when He's doing it. 
They persecuted the master. Finally, because of all this, they plotted to murder him. just want to read it and we'll end. In John 5, 17, Jesus answered them. And he said, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son of God can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Here is a great statement of his deity. And I want to save this and what follows for next time. It's a wonderful study in the deity of Christ unfolded to us by John and his gospel. What an amazing thing that this loving man healing this hurting man, that they would so misjudge the whole thing that they would plot his death and they wouldn't stop until he hung on the cross. That is the violent danger of legalism in the life of an individual. You be a spirit-led person, a loving person, a gracious person, and under the authority of your master, you will become like him, like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in studying the life of Jesus. It is so good, Lord, to come again to the Gospel of John and to see our wonderful Lord and Savior at work. God, help us to be like that man in the face of his opposition, to hide ourselves in Christ to be like our master who never did anything to draw attention to himself and to avoid the pitfalls of these people who missed everything you had to bring to them because they were so hung up on their own set of rules and regulations and their twisting of your scriptures to their own demise. Lord, we love you and we bless you and we praise you as we look forward to the work of your spirit to lead us forth into all truth and the fullness of experience in Christ. And we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.